This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Malachi uh, this morning. If, if you uh, wonder where that is, it's easy to find. Go to the New Testament. Go to the first book of the New Testament. Go to Matthew and, and turn back just a, just a page or two, um, and you will be in, in, in Malachi. And so um, this is a, it's a brief book of, of Scripture, um, and we're going to walk through it just in, in, in about five weeks. And so you may have noticed kind of a pattern uh, with us in the fall, and that is I kind of like to preach from the Old Testament during the the fall. I'm I'm not legalistic about this, not bound to it, um, but I I enjoy preaching from the Old Testament uh, in the fall because we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. We're looking forward to what we celebrate at at Jesus. And the Old Testament is really about that. It's about about looking forward to the coming of Christ. And we see the promises of Jesus that are so clear in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that in the book of Malachi. Because Jesus is all over the book of Malachi. It is is a gospel-rich book of of scripture. And so we're calling this series Love Letter to a Troubled People because the book of Malachi is is it's a letter of love from God to his people to Israel at a time when they are very troubled. And and what you're going to see is that the issues that they were facing and the answers that God gives are just so relevant and contemporary to our own lives and our own times. And so this morning, we're going to talk about undeserved love, undeserved love. And to do that, um, we're going to look at the first five verses of the book of Malachi. So Malachi 1 and verses 1 through 5, if you would stand uh, in honor of of God's word as we look at it together. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to desert jackals. Through, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. You can be seated. So Father, now we thank you for your word and as we uh, come before it today, we pray that you would help us to see your grace, which we've, we've sung about already today, that we would see your, your undeserved love that, 
this is not something that, that we've merited in any way. It's not something that we can earn. It comes to us as a gift. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would help us to see today just the, the, the amazing love and grace that you have given us, even in our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, have you ever had the experience, um, maybe even here in our church, of knowing two people and, and knowing both of them for like a long time, like years, and then suddenly one day you discover that these two people are related? <laughs> and like you never knew. You've known both of them for years and like you had no idea that they were parent-child, or that they were uh, siblings, or cousins, or, or, or whatever it was. You knew them both individually, but you had no idea that they were related. And sometimes we do that with the Bible, because we can tend to think of these 66 books of the Bible as just sort of unrelated units unto themselves, but that's not true. The Bible is one big story, one big glorious story of redemption. And we especially need to understand that when we look at books in the Old Testament, because we can look at Old Testament books and just think that they're kind of separate from Christ and from the overall redemptive story of Scripture, but they are not They're all related. Everything in the Bible speaks the name of Jesus and God's undeserved love. And and you're going to see that so clearly over the next few weeks as we look at the prophecy of Malachi. So before we um, dig in today to, to Malachi, I just want to kind of do a little bit of, of, of background uh, for you, just to kind of sort of set the, the context. First of all, the author of Malachi. We don't know much about him, <laughs> other than that his name is Malachi, <laughs> which means in Hebrew, messenger. Messenger. In fact, there are 55 verses in the book of Malachi, and 47 out of the 55 verses in Malachi are spoken directly by God. And so Malachi, the prophet, really is just the messenger, which is what his name means. A little bit about the the background of the book. Both internal and external evidence points to the fact that Malachi was written after Israel's exile in Babylon, um, at about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi's prophecy is written about that time. And just to kind of give you sort of a historical context for that, in 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians had invaded Israel. They leveled Jerusalem and level the temple and they took many of the people away with them to Babylon to exile 
That was 586 BC. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Persians, conquered the Babylonians. And a year later, in 538, Cyrus issued a decree that the Jews could return from Babylon to their homeland, back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And that part of that was that they could also rebuild their temple. And so that was 538. Two years later, in 536 BC, they began work on the second temple. There were a couple of delays along the way, but that second temple was completed in 515 BC. But all was not well. There was still difficulty. There was still trouble, as we'll we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. And so by the time that Malachi was written, which most scholars to believe, believe was around 460 BC, the temple had been rebuilt, worship had, been, had resumed in the temple, but yet times were still troubled, and we're going to talk about why in a few minutes. Let's talk about kind of the the, the literary structure of Malachi. Malachi is really unique. It's uh, there's a there's sort of a creative literary device that Malachi uses, and it comes up again and again in throughout the, the the book. And that is that Malachi grabs the attention of his readers by quoting their own words and thoughts back to them. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. The position of the book is strategic because it's not only the last book of the Old Testament, but it's the last prophecy before the coming of Christ. This is it. After Malachi, there's going to be a period of silence before the coming of Jesus. So this is the last prophetic word in the Old Testament. Let's talk about the occasion of the, of the book. As I mentioned, it's a troubled time. The people are back in the land, but they're not back with the Lord. They're spiritually troubled. You know, when, 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 when the Israelites return from their exile in Babylon, their hopes were sky high. I mean, they, they thought that, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going back to, back to our homeland, back to Jerusalem. We get to rebuild the temple and it's going to be like utopia. But life had not, turned out that way for them. And times were, 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 were difficult for them and, and they had become discouraged. They had become in, embittered. It was a time of waiting for them. I mean, they were back in the, in the land, but, but, but yet it was not utopia. There were still all of these problems. And, and you know, we can relate to this, right? Because we, we live in a time of waiting, don't we? Those of us who are Christians, we, we, we've experienced redemption in Christ. We have been brought back home, in a sense, 
Spiritually, we've come back home to, to, to God and we've experienced his redemption in Christ, but yet we live kind of in, in an in-between time. We live in a waiting period because we are still waiting for the return of Christ. When there's gonna be no more death, no more suffering, no more sin, no, no more of the, the, the many trials that we experience in this fallen world. But that time is not yet. And so we too live in a waiting period. And the temptation when you're in a waiting period is to become discouraged or to become apathetic, to become cynical, to become bitter. And, and we need a reminder of the undeserved love of God that we have experienced. I love what Old Testament scholar Ray Clendenin says about the book of Malachi. Clendenin says, Malachi spoke to the hearts of a troubled people whose circumstances of financial insecurity, religious skepticism, and personal disappointments were similar to those often experienced by God's people today. The book contains a message that must not be overlooked by those who wish to encounter God and lead others to a similar encounter. We have a great, loving, and holy God who has unchanging and glorious purposes for his people. That's Malachi. So let's, let's dig into it. What do we see here in these first five uh, verses? And if you want to kind of take notes and follow along, uh, we've got them on the, the back of your, your bulletin. If you want to kind of follow along and uh, fill in blanks as we go along. But the first, the first thing that we see is this. We see here a statement and a question about love. A statement and a question about love. So let's look at verses one and two. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Now, do you see the pattern here? We're gonna see it again and again in Malachi. And that is that God is quoting their own words and their own, the attitudes of their hearts back to them. Because he says, I've loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? That was the attitude of their heart. How have you loved us? God's quoting their own words, their own thoughts and attitudes back to them. Now, this is very revealing <laughs> about where they were, right? I mean, if, if, I, say to, if I say to Melissa, honey, I, I love you, I'm kind of expecting her to say back to me, honey, I love you too. <laughs> if I say to Melissa, <laughs> I love you, <laughs> and my wife says back to me, how have you loved me? There's trouble, right? <laughs> and there was definitely trouble in these people with their relationship with, with God, because that's the question they were asking. How, God, how have you loved us? Um, it, they, they had become embittered um, because of the hardness of their life and some of the things that they were going through. 
And it's easy for us to become that way too because life is hard. <laughs> you know, just, just everyday life in, in this world that we're living in uh, can be hard. Uh, there's an expression that, that golfers have uh, and, and that is that, you know, there, there are days, there are days in, in, in golf when, when even the best golfers, even, even guys on the PGA Tour, you know, they, there are some days when just everything just seems to be going right and just, it just, the, the game just sort of flows and they call that being in the zone, but most days aren't like that, <laughs> even for the best golfers. Most days, even guys out on the PGA Tour, they're just trying to make it through. They're just trying to kind of keep, their, keep it together. And they call that the grind. That's called just, just grinding. And, and, and that's the way that, that everyday life is in, in a fallen world, right? There, it, life can be a grind. And that's not to deny the, the, the joy and the hope that we have in Christ. But it's to, it's to be realistic and to understand earth is not heaven. Earth is not heaven. I mean, we're living in a fallen world. We're dealing with, with sin. There's sin all around us. There's sin within us. There's trials and tribulations and temptations that we go through. Uh, there's, you know, and so we're living around fallen people all around us. So there are relational problems as, as well. And we're living in these perishable bodies. And so we have all kinds of physical issues that come along with, with, with that. And, 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 the ten, and, and so, listen earth is not heaven. <laughs> One day, we're, there's going to be a new heaven and earth, and if you know Christ, you're going to be there, and there's going to be no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. Praise God. But we're not there yet, right? And so, um, yes, we have the hope and the joy of, of Christ, but yet life is hard. And then when you throw in on top of kind of the, the trials and the struggles of everyday life, when you throw in like something extraordinary, some tragedy that happens, right? Somebody, somebody passes away. There's a, just a, a terrible diagnosis from the, the, the doctor or, you know, some extraordinary trial and the breaking of a relationship or whatever, when you throw on things like that on top of sort of everyday things, it can be overwhelming. And, 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 and we can, our hearts can become hard. They can become cynical. They can become bitter. And this is where the people are as Malachi is written, because they are asking the question, how can we know that God loves us when life seems like it's so much less than what we had hoped for? Now, if you know the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you, you know that when they say to God, how have you loved us? You know that God could have had a few choice words for them, right? God could have said to them, um, do you remember that thing called the Exodus? 
Do you remember when you all were slaves in Egypt and when I just delivered you from slavery with a mighty hand and brought you into the promised land? God could have said to them, hey, do you remember how you said thank you to me for delivering you from slavery in Egypt? You you made like a golden calf and worshiped an idol and, and you grumbled against me and you were so faithless, you refused to even enter the promised land. God could have said to them, do you remember how time and time and time again You have been faithless when I have been faithful. Do you remember how every time that you did that, I forgave you and restored you over and over and over again? Do you remember any of that? And so God God could have responded in that way. But how does he respond? God responds with an affirmation of love. Instead of just kind of throwing their sins back in their face, what does God say? I've loved you. I've loved you. I love what Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid says about this. He says, God does not begin his address with words of judgment, but with a word of affirmation and commitment. And there's profound wisdom in this approach. Sometimes when people come to us for help, we can be quick to point out all the things that are wrong with them. And there may be much truth in what we say and the issues will need to be addressed at some point. But by itself, people's clearer knowledge of their sins may simply overwhelm them. Often the first truth that people need to grasp is God's love for them. Wow, that's so true. Because how many times has someone come to us, maybe somebody in our family, you know, or, or maybe, maybe a friend, and they've come to us and they're, and they're broken. Life is really a mess. And we know, we know the situation well enough to where, you know, we can think of 10 things off the top of our head that they have done that have contributed to the mess. I mean, we know the situation well enough to where we, 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 can, we, can, we, could, we could immediately point to a dozen choices that they have made that have gotten them into the mess that they're in. But that's kind of not what they need to hear right then, right? That's not what they need from us in that moment. What, what they need is God's love for them. What they need is for us to point them to God, to give them, to help them to hope in, in him. Because it's only God that can put the pieces back together. And it's only God that can enable us to change. It's only when we understand God's love for us that we begin to hate sin and see sin for what it is, right? So that we need to understand his love first And this is really relevant to us because, you know, last week we brought forward the names of people in our lives that we're praying for. People that don't know the Lord yet. And I'm sure in many of those cases, the the names of the, the people that we placed on this altar last week, I'm sure 
that maybe they have all kinds of issues in their lives because they're, they're living life that's far from God, which causes all kinds of, of issues. But you know what they need from us? They don't need our condemnation. They need us to tell them about a savior. They need us to tell us, to give them the good news of a gospel of God's undeserved love and what Christ has done for them on the cross and what he's done for them and being raised from the dead. They need to hope in God because I wanna tell you something. They are not going to be able to change without him. They need us to point them to the savior because it's only through the power of Christ that we begin to see sin for what it is and turn from it And it's only through Christ that we're given the power to to live for God. And so what our loved ones need is for us to point them to to Christ, to the undeserved love that God shows us in the gospel. And so we see here a statement and a question about love. Second, we see a surprising answer. A surprising answer. Let's look at um, verses two and and three. God says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now, this is just kind of like not where we expect God to go with this. (laughs) When they say, how have you loved us? We expect God to sort of enumerate all all the, the ways that he has proven his love for them. But instead, God reminds them of the story of two brothers. And they knew about both of these brothers. (laughs) They knew the story well, and we need to be reminded of it. So Jacob was was their ancestor, right? God's talking to Israel here. So they were the descendants of Jacob. Um, And the Edomites were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Esau and Jacob were brothers. In fact, they were not just brothers, they were twin brothers. But there the similarities ended. Esau had the brawn, Jacob had the brains. Esau was hairy, Jacob was smooth. Esau was a hunter, Jacob was a homebody. Esau was fiery and impulsive, Jacob was calculating and analytical. I mean, these two twin brothers could not have been any more different as human beings. But the real difference, the ultimate difference was in how they related to God. Because what does God say here? He says, I I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now understand, when it says that God hated Esau, the word here is, is used in a totally different way than the way we use the word hate in, in modern English. It's just kind of not what it means here. In, in, in this context, hate is like, it's, it's like a Jewish idiom for, for choosing, right? It's about choosing. In the Gospels, there's one point where Jesus says, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and sister and, your, and so on, then you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. So was Jesus saying there that we should, in order to be his disciple, we have to like hate our parents and our siblings and families and all that? No. 
what Jesus is saying is, is that, um, that, that, that in order to, to follow him, that he has to be number one in the order of priority, right? That we must choose Christ above every other relationship and every other thing in, in life because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So, so that's, that's the way that Jesus uses the word hate. It's not saying we should hate our families. We're called to love our families, but God is number one. We choose him as, as first, first place, right? And, and, and when it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, it's not saying that God had emotional hatred for, for Esau. In fact, when you read their story, it's clear God blessed Esau and showed him his mercy in all kinds of ways. But when it came to which, to the, to which brother was going to, to be the one who was chosen to carry forth God's covenant promises to Israel, God chose Jacob and not Esau. And why was that? Was it because, that, because Jacob was more virtuous? Oh no, <laughs> not at all. In fact, when you read the story of these two brothers, what's perfectly clear is that neither of them deserved to be chosen. Esau was foolishly impulsive all his life. You know, he trades his birthright for a quick meal. You know, he, he crushes his parents by marrying two pagan women. Some scholars believe he married them on the same day in the same ceremony, which must have been really awkward. <laughs> and then Esau is so furious with his brother that, that he makes plans, uh, not only makes plans to murder Jacob, but he goes around and tells everybody about his plans. Jacob was no better. And in fact, you know, as, as dumb as Esau's sins were, Jacob's sins it, it were even kind of more diabolical because they were more scheming and, and calculating. It's true, Esau was foolish for trading in his birthright for a quick meal, but what kind of a brother takes advantage of his, of his, famished, his famished, famished brother to sort of trick him into that? A brother like Jacob would do that. Uh, and then what kind of a brother uh, Jacob once again what does Jacob do to rob Esau of his blessing he tricks their blind father (laughs) into giving him Esau's blessing you remember the story Jacob takes animal hair and puts it all over his hands so that his blind dad will think that he's Esau and he goes in and, and, and robs Esau of his, of his blessing. <laughs> so, you know, which of these two dysfunctional knuckleheads deserve to be God's chosen instrument for carrying forth his covenant promises to Israel? 
And the obvious answer is neither of them. Neither of them deserve that. But God chose Jacob for that and not Esau. And part of us wants to say, well, that's not what? Fair. (laughs) But if you want to talk about fairness, if we get fairness, if we get perfect justice, where are sinners like all of us? We're all in hell. If God, if God treats us with perfect fairness, that's where we are, right? If God gives us pure law, that's where we are. We are doomed. But instead, what has God given us? He's given us mercy, right? He's given us the gospel. He's given us Jesus. He's given us what we did not deserve. You know, Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, is just just a picture of these two things. There's a character in in Les Miserables, the the, the police inspector, Javert, who really just kind of represents that concept of, 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 of law. And, and so when Jean Valjean steals this loaf of bread to, to feed his family, there's no mercy in, involved here. Javert just hunts him down and he's thrown into prison for just decades of, of hard labor for this. And when he, he manages to escape, Javert, all about the law, he's still after him. He's going to chase him down. You were going to pay for your crime. And then the bishop in the story represents grace, right? Because what happens? Jean Valjean escapes from prison. He goes to the the house of this this bishop and this, this kind pastor takes him in and allows him to, gives him a place to, to, to sleep and, 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 sh- and shelter. And, and, and how does Jean Valjean thank the bishop? He thanks him by waking up in the middle of the night and stealing his silver. <laughs> Steals this precious family heirloom and just takes off with it. And then the police catch him and they catch him red-handed. And he's got all the silver that he stole and they drag him back to the bishop's house and show up at his door. And this time they are gonna throw just this wretch Jean Valjean in prison forever and throw away the key. And what happens? The bishop opens the door and he sizes up the situation, sees what's going on. And he says to the police and to Jean Valjean, he says, I'm delighted to see you again. Did you forget that I gave you the candlesticks as well? I meant for you to take them also. He says, and he says to the police, he says, this silver was my, this man is no thief. This silver was my gift to him. And the police take off and Jean Valjean is left trembling and speechless. And this act of grace, of undeserved love, changes his life. And he devotes the rest of his life to helping those in need. Why? Because he has experienced amazing grace, undeserved love. 
And that's what God is reminding Israel of here through the story of Jacob and Esau that they have been on the receiving end of love that they did not deserve. Just as Jacob was on the receiving end of, of, of love that he did not deserve, that, they have been, that his descendants have been on the receiving end of that undeserved love. And God is reminding them of that. They, he's reminding them that God chose Jacob and them not because they deserved it, but purely because of his undeserved love. Now look at verses three and four. Uh, God says here of Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, says, I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. So what in the world is this about? So the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And while Israel was being just leveled and decimated by the Babylonians, the Edomites had sided with the Babylonians. They weren't just sort of cheering the Babylonians on. They had joined in with them. And it seemed like, you know, they had chosen the winning side and they were victorious and they were safe and prospering all without God. But God is reminding them, this, this isn't the end of the story. This wasn't the end of the story. Because Ultimately, the Edomites were going to be brought to nothing. And see, God is reminding Israel here that, hey, listen, you may be going through hard times, but unlike the Edomites, you have a hope and a future because they're never going to rebuild. Now listen, again, it's undeserved love. Right, all of this points to the undeserved love of God. And what does that point us to? Again, Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid says this, the restoration of Jacob and of Israel ultimately points beyond them to the gospel, which teaches that final definitive judgment falls not on deserving sinners like ourselves, but on God's beloved son. The third thing that we see here is God's missionary heart. God's missionary heart. And we see it in verse five. God says, your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. Beyond the borders you see, God is, God is dealing here with his own people, with Israel, but yet throughout the book of Malachi, there are hints of something more. What we see here is a God whose heart of love knows no borders. What we see is a God who is about redeeming a new people from every tribe and tongue. A God whose love transcends all borders, 
all races, all ethnicities, all languages, and who's creating a new people for himself. I love in Amos, Amos chapter nine and verses 11 and 12, it points to this. God says, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Wow, you know what that's saying? God is saying that he is about redeeming a people. We're talking about the Edomites here, but God says that there's gonna be a remnant, even though the nation of Edom was destroyed, there's gonna be a remnant from Edom. People who are descended from the Edomites, Jacob's descendants, Esau's descendants, that I'm gonna redeem. Along with, with who? To, with all the nations that bear my name, because what is gonna be the ultimate? What is, what is God doing in this world? He's redeeming people from every tribe and tongue. So that when we get to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, in Revelation 5, 9, the Bible says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Yes. This is the ultimate, Right? And so what does God call us to do in the meantime? We've got a God with a missionary heart and he calls us to join in with him on the mission, a mission that goes beyond borders, right? And so sometimes that that means going to countries far beyond our own borders and to people who speak languages different than our own and going going to them. But listen, it also means going to people that we know that are still on the outside looking in as far as Christianity is concerned. That's what the last five weeks are all about. That's what, you know, when you brought forward your one last week, Right, that you, somebody that you're praying for and you're sharing the gospel with and you're, you're inviting them to come to church and things like that. It means reaching out, kind of getting out of ourselves, moving beyond people that are kind of already on the inside and going past that border to those who are on the outside. And brothers and sisters, we do that because we have a savior who went outside for us Jesus bore a cross and took it outside, outside the gates of Jerusalem and died as a criminal on the outside, as the ultimate outsider, so that we could be brought to the inside, into the very presence of God, all because of his undeserved love. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for the gospel We thank you that in your mercy, that instead of giving us as sinners what we deserve, that you gave your son for us who bore our sins and who rose from the dead so that we can have new life and eternal life. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know that savior. Father, I pray that right now that they would turn to Jesus and trust him and receive the salvation that is only found through his undeserved love. We pray it in his name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. 
Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.